0: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Tracy Bond's Flying Circus. A celebration and look at 60 years of James Bond on film with a 21st century queer and feminist lens. I'm one half of your hosts, Sarah the Scrivener.
1: And I'm the other half of both the podcast's and yours, Michaela Moody. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm.
0: So since this is the first episode of our podcast, we thought we would take some time to introduce ourselves so that you have a little bit of context moving forward for who we are, what we're doing, what we hope to accomplish, and why you should care. Who are we? Okay, so I am Sarah the Scrivener. I have a YouTube channel that is currently on hiatus with my best friend Paige. It's called Princess and the Scrivener. Paige will be on for multiple episodes, so if you're joining us because you know me from The Princess and the Scrivener, do not worry. Miss Page. Paige will be here at some point. And we are both queer, I'm bisexual, my pronouns are she, her, I am your girlfriend, and I think that's about it. I'm not really doing anything else much on the internet nowadays, since the channel is on hiatus, but yeah. That's who I am. And I am the Bond novice.
1: And I'm Michaela Moody. I am the Bond pro or 20-year fan, let's say. My pronouns are she, her. I am a trans non-binary lesbian, also disfigured, disabled and somewhat deaf. The most significant thing I've been recently is being a voluntary campaigner for changing faces in the UK, but otherwise I just do Twitter, really. I talk a lot on my Twitter when I'm on there, which is less so than the last few years. I talk a lot about disfigurement and disability as they intersect with my transness. I also talk quite a lot about Muppets and Peanuts, because they're things I like. And another thing I like is Bond. I used to have a podcast called Castle to Castle, as I would do with my good friend Emmett, who will be joining us at some point. But... That was a long time ago, that was then and this is now.
0: Let's tell you a little bit more about our relationship. How did we meet, babe? We
1: met on Twitter. I slid into your DMs and never fails <laughs> to give me an immense amount of pleasure to just say that this is how it happens. It is. It's been five years. It has
0: been. We've been dating for five years. Something I didn't mention is that I'm from Florida, Michaela is from the UK, she lives in the Midlands, and I live in central Florida. And the very first time that you visited me back in whew, 2017, 2017, it's very funny because right now um, our anniversary coincided with Hurricane Irma. You came to visit and then Hurricane Irma hit the area and uh, it hit Tampa Bay. And that was a very interesting week long trip that turned into a month long trip, which is very, very sapphic of us now, I am actually recording this from uh, from a room in my parents' house, where I am currently staying with my parents in the panhandle, because I had to evacuate for Hurricane Ian. <laughs> very, very fun. But anyways, we've been dating for five years. With me being in Florida and you being in the UK, we are in a long-distance relationship and have been the entire time. Now, we met because you were actually tweeting about disfigurement readings of Beauty and the Beast.
1: Specifically, Disney's Beauty and the Beast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, The animated Beauty and the Beast is my favorite Disney film and one of my favorite films and is the same for you. And it was an an analysis that I'd never seen before and I was very fascinated by it. And so, yes, we did start talking and flirting. And I think that's about it in terms of our relationship.
1: How did we start this book us?
0: So we started this because you are a longtime Bond fan, Mm -hmm. have been most of your whole life. And I had only previously seen Tomorrow Never Dies when I was very in my Michelle Yeoh phase in middle school, which to be fair, I think if you know Michelle Yeoh, uh, it's not really a phase. You love her forever. But so I watched her in that um, because she was in it. And then I saw Skyfall in 2012 because they went really hard on the marketing for Skyfall because it was the 50th anniversary, so I saw that. And you started showing me all the films starting with Sean Connery back in, like, 2018, mm-hmm. I want to say. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we started to have some really interesting conversations about, like, How Bond compared to somebody who was a longtime fan versus somebody who was just becoming acquainted with it as an adult, as well as like the ways that we can look at gender and sexuality and race um, and disability and disfigurement within the confines of Bond, especially from a 21st century lens. Like what kinds of cultural contexts don't even exist really anymore when you watch these films that the film just kind of assumed that you would know and always have in place, and we just had a lot of fun with that. And we thought, yep. like, we've been kicking around the idea of a podcast for a little while, specifically about this.
1: The goals and premises of this podcast, I guess, are to talk about it from those positions, like where we're each coming from. Me as a veteran, you as a relative novice who has seen now most of them once,
0: except for the Daniel Craig's.
1: Yeah, some of them none, none at all. Um, there is one film that I've never seen. But I'm going to tell you. We have a an outline for each episode that we will briefly go over in a moment. We will have guests, we have a bunch of good guests, really good guests lined up, coming up very soon. In fact, next episode will be starting our guests. And the intention, given that it is the 60th anniversary of Bond with the release of Doctor No on October 5th, 1962 is to mark this sixtieth anniversary, which a lot of people are doing, podcasts and vlogs and stuff. And to try and be finished in a year. Like we know what we're doing. We're looking at every film, we're looking at a couple of ancillary films. And we'll be done ideally October twenty twenty three.
0: So we will get through all of the Daniel Craig films next year. You gotta wait.
1: Like all all, all your who loves Skyfall and beyond, you gotta hold on and enjoy the rest of it until then.
0: Yeah, you're gonna have to wait till like next July.
1: <laughs> I mean, and that's something I like about this podcast project. I don't know about you, but I like that it is not open-ended. It is a single thing. It it has an end. Yes. And sure, if we really enjoy it, we can probably do other things, but they won't necessarily be James Bond. I enjoy being in a in a relationship with you. So that's true. It's, it's I I enjoy good, that
0: I too. I have. Five out of five stars. Well, actually four and a half. Four and a half. I don't like the long distance part, but it's um, unavoidable.
1: Me neither. As for how the podcast identifies, let's say, we're going under the moniker Tracy Bond's Flying Circus. Now, why are we doing that? You might wonder.
0: Unless you're already a Bond fan and you know all the references that are in that title.
1: Let's just give the brief backstory of how we had to dump our original name which was no time to bond with the comma yes because we found another podcast yes that is using that title there,
0: there is another bond podcast that to be fair we have not listened to it it's a, it seems to be a father and son duo uh hosting a bond podcast they started last year alongside with like the release of no time to die no, no hard feelings about that yeah. whatsoever. We were originally going to call it no, comma, time to bond in reference to our long distance relationship and all that other good stuff. But they did beat us to it. It's only fair. Um, and so, so
1: we were like fiddling around looking for things that might work.
0: And you came up with this, actually.
1: I mean, I came up with the final version. I think you brought up Pussy Galore's Flying Circus as an yes. inspiration.
0: Yes, I did. For those of you who haven't watched Goldfinger in a long time, Goldfinger is one of the most famous James Bond films. I would imagine that like most of the things that if you're not a Bond fan, a lot of the expectations that you have of what a Bond film is comes from Goldfinger. Um, there is a character in Goldfinger. His name is Pussy Galore. She is a pilot. And in the book, it's very much implied. like Slash, you are definitely as a reader in... You know the 1950s meant to think that she is either a lesbian or bisexual. She runs this uh, female pilot brigade called Posicolor's Flying Circus, and they're all they're all women. And that is in the film, though the queerness has been dropped in a way that's not nearly as perceptible, I think, to a modern audience as it might have been back in the 1960s. Obviously, we thought it would be nice to pay homage to a queer woman in Bond's legacy, uh, since we are queer women ourselves, and it's going to very much coincide with how we will be looking at Bond as two queer women and as two women.
1: And the other part of the name, Tracy Bond, refers to Bond's doomed lover, Tracy, who appears in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which will be close to the end of this first phase of our films. There's a lot to say about Tracy Bond that we'll get to later on, but it is worth noting that she is one of the few elements of recurring canon, and we want to contribute in sort of the fan space to giving her that kind of respect, so Tracy Bond's flying circuses is... And I think that's a pretty neat title, don't you?
0: I think so too, because I'd like to think that if Tracy and Pussy Galore had ever gotten to meet, uh, they probably would have really enjoyed each other's company. Mm -hmm. Because they're both very similar, like, take-no-shit kind of women in the Bond franchise.
1: Yeah. I want to briefly go over trigger warnings, because that's going to be something that we need to pay attention to, and there is actually some... Not insignificant stuff, even in this starting episode. Mm -hmm. We are keeping a a list of trigger warnings, partially inspired by, I think, the website Does the Dog Die?
0: Yes. So Does the Dog Die is a really great resource that um, you can look up for various kinds of trigger warnings, like emotional spoilers, like, you know, does an animal die in this film? But also has expanded over the last few years to include lots and lots of things. So definitely look that up.
1: It's important to note that when I used it a couple weeks ago, it did not have the bond film I was looking for. I can't remember which one that was. So it is not, doesn't necessarily have everything. But we have we have this list content warnings, which we will, we will be giving both in the episode and to any guests we have on, mm-hmm. and that includes things like sexual assault, expressions of racism like black slash brown slash yellow face religious or faith stigma, mistreatment or misrepresentation of indigenous people and cultures, homophobia, transphobia, fatphobia, ableism, sanism, which is the prejudice against various neuro- neurodivergences. Mental illness. This which is my, if you haven't encountered it before, is my own coinage for the prejudice against an erasure of people with disfigurements and visible differences.
0: So people who have limb differences or, you know, things like spina bifida, scarring, um, missing facial, body parts, stuff like facial
1: that. Facial disfigurements like mine. Um mm-hmm. animal death, like we alluded to. Excessive violence slash injury detail.
0: Gore, stuff like that.
1: Age gap relationships. Drug use and jump scares, because sometimes that's worthwhile. We also have our discussion structure, which, Sarah, would you like to briefly go over?
0: Yes, I would. The structure that we'll be discussing these films each episode uh, will follow along these lines. Of course, it's a conversation, so we will vary. But basically, this is what we'll be doing. We'll discuss story and characters. We will talk about whether or not the film is a travelogue or an action movie. And can
1: we just briefly like define travelogue? Because it's not necessarily a term everyone uses at the moment. Absolutely. I think when we say travelogue, at least when I say travel, I mean like, is its prime motivation or one of its prime motivations to show off how beautiful or exotic this different part of the world is?
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that is a huge part of Bond, I think. And sometimes it is exotified and othered.
0: It's a very important distinction between classic Bond and like the Bond era starting with Pierce Brosnan and onward. Yeah. We will also give ratings and opinions on the women in the film, how sex is portrayed, villains, kills, jokes and innuendo, sets, music, and the song at the beginning. And then we will round it out with uh, the opinions of a Bond veteran by Michaela versus um, my opinion, uh, given it's my second or third viewing. And when we have a guest, they will give their Their opinions based off of their own individual Bond experiences. So we'll have that contrast between, you know, how does this stand up as a long-term fan as part of the legacy of Bond versus, like, how does it stand up as a movie by itself?
1: And here we go to the section that I'm calling Michaela's sublime Sequence, which, spoiler alert, though I won't go much further into it, is inspired by the Bond as a found disarming a nuclear weapon sequence in Octopussy. Every film. (laughs) I forgot about that. Every Bond film is a mess. Like, that, I just want to say that outright. There are no perfect Bond films, just as, like, there are a vanishing number of perfect MCU films, but each Bond film has a moment that I think is perfectly ex- executed. And so I just like if that is applicable to the film we're talking about then I'm grabbing a couple of minutes to wax lyrical about how much I love that particular sequence. The last couple of things are we're going dis- to we're going to attempt to describe the movie in one sentence or less than five words. Now there may be some folks listening who listen to other Bond podcasts we actually share this somewhat with the A to Z Bond podcast which Asks uh, for three-word reviews from their Twitter followers and hosts. We came up with this independently, which is not to say we came up with it first, because they predate us. It's similar, but slightly different, and I I like the idea of trying to sum up the Bond films like that, and we're going to do it. And the final takeaway is going to be, would you recommend it, would we recommend it, or is it like worth watching at all?
0: And the the other thing about the takeaway that's fun is that it's an opportunity for us to be, you know, pithy and irreverent about what we just watched. Like things like Moonraker, very easy. You just it's eugenics in space, and like that is the main motivation that I had for coming and up with this idea. And the spy is
1: eugenics under the sea.
0: Exactly. Yes, indeed. They are also back to back, so it's mm. very fun. Well, I think that's certainly enough preamble. Let's get started on talking about Dr. No, 1962. Dr. Yes? Dr. Yes. <laughs> Dr. Who?
1: So, I did want to get some historical context. This is mostly from reading a book called When Harry Met Cubby, also, listening a bit to the James Bond A to Z podcast. So the important things to know are that, like, Ian Fleming wrote the Bond books, starting with Casino Royale, 1953, and two very important figures in Bond films are Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Cubby Broccoli, who were the producers and ran the production company Eon Productions. They both worked in film prior to Bond. Cubby Broccoli worked with a guy called Irving Allen, With their production company, Warwick Films, which was mostly war or Africa adventure kind of exploitation films. Only one of those that I've read about is super interesting to me, and that's a film called The Trials of Oscar Wilde. Harry Saltzman, amongst other activities, he did a lot of work helping performing artists get out of Nazi Germany during the war, and worked in the Psychological Warfare Division of the U.S. Office of Strategic Services, the OSS). So, like Ian Fleming, he was something of a spy during the war. Harry Saltzman also started a production company called Woodfall, who are most significant for making film adaptations of what were known as kitchen sink dramas, plays like Look Back in Anger and The Entertainer and Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, which were all kind of famous. They were very much sort of rough British dramas that kind of spawned the angry young man genre. And Saturday Night and Sunday Morning was actually the first film to star Albert Finney. Oh. Who... Became very famous and uh-huh. also was later on in a Bond film, Skyfall, much later. Oh, that's right. Harry Saltzman approached in Fleming for the rights to Bond. He did end up gaining an option, a limited time option for everything except Casino Royale and Thunderball. And we'll, we'll talk more about why Thunderball wasn't included in the Thunderball episode, I think. But including critically, the right to make original films once all of the available novels had been adapted. He only had a a short amount of time to get a film company interested in making these films before the rights reverted back to Ian Fleming. Helpfully, shortly after this deal was made, From Russia With Love was on President Kennedy's reading list, his apparently ninth favourite book according to Life magazine, which like, made Bond really popular in the US.
0: Wow, okay.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, it didn't really help Saltzman get anyone to agree to make a film until a mutual friend, Wolf Mankiewicz, who was a British screenwriter, brought Broccoli and Saltzman together to partner on producing the films, and finally they went to United Artists who agreed to make the films. Broccoli and Saltzman started a publishing company called Danjack, which still exists to this day, I believe, which is named after their wives, Dana Broccoli and Jacqueline Saltzman, and a production company, Eon Productions. So this is where someone who I really wanted to make sure we brought up comes up, Joanna Harwood, who started out as a secretary to Harry Saltzman. She was an Irish aspiring filmmaker. She spoke French and was able to get into a very prestigious French film school. And then she got work, often generally, as a continuity supervisor, which is one of the roles that a lot of women took in filmmaking before women were more widely given the opportunity to write and direct. In the late 50s, she wrote a parody short story in which Bond plays, in inverted commas, high-stakes cards. In fact, the game Snap with his nanny. ...as a child, which Ian Fleming apparently enjoyed. Hmm. Diana Harwood became a secretary for Harry Saltzman, and also wrote spec scripts that she hoped eventually to be able to direct. Harry Saltzman put a lot of stock in her opinions. Had her write the first draft of the Doctor No script. Oh! Yep. Yeah. Then Cubby, Broccoli, got Richard Maybaum and Wolf Mankiewicz to do a rewrite... They weren't super impressed by Fleming's character, Dr. No, who they considered, in quote a second-rate Fu Manchu. Mm. They created a separate villain who had a marmoset monkey psychic who (laughs) took the name Dr. No. Mm. No one liked this. (laughs) Cubby and Saltzman dismissed the idea of Dr. No as a monkey and Joanna Harwood did another draft. An author, Berkeley Mather, Did a draft which was then finally given once more to Harwood The final Joanna Harwood edit is what was filmed with on-set alterations And so Berkeley Maller, Joanna Harwood and I'm pretty sure Richard Mabon Are credited on the final film as writers And Joanna Harwood went on to do pretty much the same thing I believe For From Russia With Love And possibly was an uncredited script doctor also on Goldfinger but
0: fascinating.
1: fairly soon after that got disillusioned with filmmaking because no one was allowing her to do anything mm. and spent most of the rest of the century working for the Reader's Digest in Paris. Mm. But like, given who we are and the kind of podcast we're making, I thought it was really important to point out that Joanna Harwood did all of this.
0: No, that's fascinating. Thank you for bringing that up.
1: Yeah, As to other things... Broccoli and Saltzman approached various directors who were either unavailable, uninterested, or actively insulted at the suggestion. Oh wow. Because <laughs> they considered it a pulpy potboiler series. Terrence Young was brought on and kind of brought his own experience of being an upper class twit to the film, including training Sean Connery in elegance, basically. <laughs> Numerous actors were also either unavailable or insulted by being asked to play Bond. Well, wow. Roger Moore was briefly considered, oh. but was about to be very busy in the TV series The Saint. That's funny. Sean Connery was suggested. Cubby Broccoli organised an LA screening of Darby O'Gill and The Little People, which is the song he had just been in. He wasn't sure if it would come across very well because it was a very, like, nice... Disney live-action film, so he asked his wife, Dana, to go to the screening and give her opinion as a woman who likes men, and she just said, Cubby, he's fabulous.
0: Oh. She's like, you better nail that boy down.
1: Connery had a meeting with the producers, and despite being apparently terribly dressed, he impressed them with his arrogance and directness, and the way he left the meeting.
0: I really want to know what he was dressed like. Now.
1: And they persuaded United Artists to agree to have Connery. Early screenings were poorly received. Oh. Terrence Young is reported to have been dismayed that everyone was laughing at it, saying it wasn't meant to be a comedy. Hmm. But the film was a success, and in fact, the book, when Harry McCubbie kind of suggests that it really captured the zeitgeist on like this magical 48 hours where like, October 4th, Roger Moore's TV series The Saint premieres. October 5th, The Beatles' Love Me Do is released. Their very first single. Wow. On the same day as the Dr. No premiere. Wow. And, like, maybe there was just a new mood.
0: Yeah. That's fascinating.
1: The critics didn't really like it, generally criticizing the film's perceived depravity and Bond's (laughs) anti-heroism, which is really interesting to me because those are elements as we go through these and as we see the critical perspective change those are like particularly the anti-heroism the way that bond is is like how stick-in-the-mud bond fans now wish he was and it just really proves how the critical establishment and what people expected has changed in 60 years because like to us he's really old hat he's kind of a relic he's a bygone kind of character yeah but back then he was offensive but in a different way yeah
0: like oh so crass Mm, this bond fellow
1: yeah but that's all the history stuff so how about we continue on to the real meat of the episode and our opinions
0: sounds great
1: First, I think we should talk about the trigger warnings for this film.
0: Sounds good to me. So right off the bat, Dr. No takes place in Jamaica. And while local black actors have been cast for many of the roles, there's of course how they are dealt with. We have the very sudden death of a rather important supporting black character who is then never mentioned again. And there's, oh, there is a whole lot of yellow face in this movie.
1: Two women and the central character.
0: The central villain, yes. So Dr. No is a biracial Chinese-German man who is played by a white man in this movie. So we have yellow face with him. And then we have two female characters in this movie who are black and white.
1: Respectively.
0: And they are also in yellow face. Yeah. And we'll get into this, I think, a little bit later. But it's certainly one of those things that I think that us as 21st century viewers kind of had to look for and like recognize it as yellow face rather than it being extremely obvious.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I think the biggest blight on this movie is the
1: racism. And I want to set the table, right. Like, we're white. Both Sarah and I are white. We, we can only talk about it from that perspective.
0: Except for several of the episodes, we've made it a point to get guests who have a cultural stake in the films that they will be talking about us with.
1: Certainly to do the best we can with the films that really merit a background, an experience that we don't have.
0: Yes. As two white women.
1: The baseline is that we are two white women talking about this. We can we can call it what it is. We can call it racism, but we don't have the experience to back it up. That said, like, like you said, one of the biggest problems with this film is how it treats race, specifically Asian background.
0: Yeah, so because Dr. No is Chinese, there are a lot of Asian players in this film. And I say Asian because I think the film is a little bit confused about some of the differences between Chinese and Japanese. Mm-hmm. Certainly there are some inspirations in the set that read much more to me as Japanese than Chinese.
1: There is a general sort of Orientalism. Yes. in In, like, fashion and style and... The way that, over and over again, Western civilization takes Eastern stuff and packages it into one thing.
0: Yes, exactly. And something that's interesting to note is that they didn't even fully commit to the yellow face because it's not just that we only have, like, white people in makeup with winged eyeliner, literally, like, in... In the cases of the women who are in yellow face, what they've done is they've put them in brocade clothing and then put winged eyeliner on them, which is interesting because it's like a very little bit of effort that is so subtle, I think, for a modern audience that we sometimes were like, oh, she's meant to be Chinese. (laughs)
1: Like, it took me a long time to learn to visually register. Yellow face particularly in this song, because I spent most of my life just assuming that Miss Tara, one of the characters, is white,
0: because she's a white woman with winged eyeliner and a bad black wig. Yeah, who lives in a very Japanese, like, but with some Chinese chairs and lanterns
1: apartment. And that's me, you know, that's me again, being a white person in an often very white part of the world, in my part of the UK.
0: Just assuming.
1: Just assuming not having the cultural lens.
0: Mm-hmm. The most interesting thing to me is that it's not like there are no Asian people in this. Like When we get to the island, we actually meet two different Asian actresses and we see several Asian men. So it- it's not a matter that they couldn't find anybody. They just clearly thought, like, for the main people, let's give them to white people or in uh, Marguerite LaWore's case, let's give this to a black actress that we found in Jamaica. And let's just go from there. It's very bizarre. And there's certainly a thing in this movie where every single time we meet an Asian character, you're meant to be suspicious of them because it connects to Dr. No, the mysterious Chinese man who lives on the island.
1: And then it's confirmed.
0: They all work for him. But like, we definitely do not have the entire knowledge that we should to talk about it any more than we have already. So we are going to move on.
1: We've got some sort of combination ableism and disfigurement here in the trope of a disabled villain with amputated limbs. Mm-hmm.
0: He has magic metal hands. Yeah. I'm sure he'd be very offended by that because Dr. No is a man of science, but um, he's got like superpower, superhuman strength metal hands. We never see them. Because it's the 1960s and yeah. I don't think they really cared. He's just wearing black gloves. Since we don't see the hands, it's like tricky, but obviously it's a disabled superpower because he's missing a limb. It is part of the trope. It is definitely part of the trope.
1: Now, within the film, I wouldn't say necessarily that there is sexual assault.
0: But we will be discussing a sexual assault that happened with one of the female actresses and the director.
1: Terence Young directed the film, and he was responsible for casting Marguerite Gordon, who was known then as Marguerite, but was, who was a former Miss Maker. She was working at the airport at the time, Terence Young thought she was very attractive and worthwhile to be put into the film.
0: Yeah, she actually plays one of the women who uh, is in Yellowface for this role. She's playing a photographer who is working for Dr. No. We see her for about one scene. Actually, we see her for two scenes. She has lines only in the second scene.
1: In the lead-up to the film's after-party in Jamaica, Terrence Young came on to her in a very aggressive manner. To the point
0: where she has to slap him.
1: We will just link to the episode of the Really 007 podcast where she tells the story, because it's best to leave it to her own words, but I believe her. There is no reason not to believe her. On this podcast, we believe women.
0: A different woman does the voice for her character when she actually speaks, when she is confronted, and that's because... When he calls her to say, if you don't come and dub your lines, we'll cut you out of the film. She says, cut me out of the film. I don't care. I'm never coming near you again. And yeah, definitely worth watching her interview. She tells it in a very powerful way. And she's only just revealed this information this past July. Before this, she'd said that there was a disagreement. And that's why she hadn't done the dubbing. So very important to note. I think we can move on and tell you the overview of the story now.
1: So, Dr. No.
0: Okay, so, Dr. No, the first James Bond movie. It begins uh, in Jamaica with the death of an MI6 British agent and his secretary. We start off very strong with the faking disability trope. These three blind Jamaican men who turn out to be assassins and very quietly kill this British agent and then drive him off.
1: And turn out to be sighted. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. We then hop back over to England where we meet James Bond for the first time. Bond is playing a card game in a casino and, you know, flirting with a beautiful woman, as you do. This beautiful woman from the casino breaks into his apartment and they sleep together in the very first Bond sex scene. It's a pretty awesome scene. Bond gets called in by MI6 to investigate, and so he visits Jamaica. He finds out that this spy was investigating a man called Dr. Julius No, who owns an island off of the coast of Kingston. The big reason this is important is because there's some radio jamming that's happening that's interfering with with a rocket launch in Cape Canaveral, Florida. When he's picked up from the airport, there is a man who says that he's his driver who attempts to kill him. They have an altercation and the man ends up killing himself with a cyanide capsule after Bond tries to interrogate him and find out who sent him. We end up meeting Felix Leiter, who is an agent from the CIA who is investigating this, along with his right-hand local man who captains a boat. His name is Quarrel, and he's a local.
1: Quarrel is specifically a Cayman Islander.
0: And as we start to investigate, we meet a very suspicious figure, Professor R.J. Dent, who is a local geologist, who was one of the last people to see this British agent alive before he was killed. And... We start to investigate this island called Crab Key, and the guy who owns this island's name is Dr. No. All we know for a very long time is that he is this Chinese man who owns this island and none of the local fishermen like to go near it because people have a habit of disappearing when they trespass on this island. There are a few more attempts made on Bond's life, including an incident with a tarantula in his bed, a woman who seduces Bond and then attempts to keep him there so that somebody else can come and kill him. We discovered that Professor Dent does in fact know what's going on and that he's working for Dr. No. And then finally, Quarrel and Bond decide to go out to the island, Quarrel rather reluctantly. They stay there overnight. They meet a woman named Honey Rider who is a shell diver. She is our first... Bond girl, really. You know, we got the ludicrously sexual name, Honey Rider. And we learn as they are dodging armed guards and tanks, we learn that Honey Rider's father was probably murdered by Dr. No. This will not play any role whatsoever in the rest of the film, but we learn it. And then Quarl dies at the hands of the guards. They are brought in to be prisoners by Dr. No in his huge underground volcano lair.
1: It's a case system. Yes,
0: we have a very tense but civil and um, unsettling dinner with Dr. No, where we learn that he's a Chinese-German criminal scientist who has metal hands, and that he is also part of the secret organization called Spectre, which stands for Special Executive for Counterintelligence Terrorism Revenge and Extortion, which is a great name. He's he's behind everything, we're trying to take him down, and then Bond does take him down, and he rescues Honey Rider, and they end the movie making out and about to have sex in a boat, which actually is how a lot of Bond films end. And that is Dr. No. It's basically like watching the whole film.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: You're welcome. Now you know who everybody is.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Since it's the first episode, I think it's not quite so structured as we've come to expect but it is still very much like the bond films that people are most familiar with
1: there are the basic beats mm-hmm. what did we think of the story
0: so i think it's pretty interesting most of the way through now certainly we discussed that it is a little bit slow but that it's a perfect place to start off with like when you're getting into bond because it sets up the rest of them and it plays off of this initial formula I think it's interesting. It pulls you in right away. There is a lot of waiting and stillness throughout the movie. And I think that when we finally get to the island, we do spend a lot of time there, and it's a little bit more boring, especially when like we're really holding back on this very interesting villain. This very compelling, creepy performance that's like, oh, I get what this guy's deal is, and he's extremely confident, and he doesn't care what anybody thinks of him. Yeah. And this is just very interesting, and it's a shame that it takes us so long to get there. Yeah. But for the most part, I think the story is pretty good. There's some things that i would cut but i do think it's interesting
1: I, I agree with all of those points what do we think is this more travel or more an action movie because i i know which side of my bread is buttered this is it's a travel oh like
0: it's definitely more of a travelogue
1: there is action for sure and there's some pretty brutal action but i don't think It overshadows the travel of nature of
0: it. I agree with you. I mean, the majority of it takes place in Jamaica. There's a lot of time in the filmmaking spent on showing how beautiful Jamaica is, and like there's a lot of time on the water. And we don't really get to the action until like the last like 20 minutes of the film. And when we say action movie, we're really talking more in the modern context of like your 80s and 90s action adventure movies, like Die Hard and. And the Pierce Brosnan Bond films.
1: Yeah, so it's definitely a travel of more than an action movie. Let's go into this. What do we think of this film's treatment of women and the characters who are women?
0: Women in this film. Okay, so we have the woman we meet in the casino at the beginning, who's this very beautiful woman.
1: Sylvia Trench.
0: Yes, Sylvia Trench, who I guess I, I incorrectly said that Honey Rider in the summary was, you know, our first Bond girl, which like, to be fair, nobody remembers Sylvia Trench, but everybody remembers Honey Rider from this film.
1: Which is, it's somewhat unfair, because Eunice Gason plays her really well, and she also gets to reprise the role, which is not common at all. No. Because we will see Sylvia Trench again in the intro to From Russia with Love.
0: Wow, okay. Um, I forgot about that, babe. Sharp, sharp memory. I do gotta say, Honey Rider, there's no offense to Ursula Andrus. She certainly has more to do than Sylvia Trench. She's in the film longer. Yeah. Like, at the same time, she still doesn't have a lot to do.
1: I don't think she makes as much of an impact beyond, like, two things. Her entrance, which is the iconic walking out of the water and shaking off her hair thing. Singing. Which I don't
0: think is that impressive, I will say. As somebody who's attracted to women, I don't think it's as impressive as it could be. I think Daniel Craig's walking out of the water in Casino Royale is much more interesting. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I'm sorry, I know that's controversial, but think- it's fine, it's fine.
1: The other thing that stands out to me from Ocean Andrews' existence in this film is the story that Honey Rider tells about Killing a man, which...
0: She basically does describe that after her father died, that she was left on her own, and that the man who she was living with, who, like, essentially demanded that she paid rent, and he wanted her to pay a different way, and then she's like, and then I killed him with a spider. And I'm like, dang, girl, get it.
1: And unfortunately, after that, which I think is a powerful moment, it doesn't really go anywhere. She she
0: doesn't have a character.
1: instantly becomes a bland damsel in distress. Mostly.
0: Which is a shame.
1: The saving grace is that Ursulandus to me has a very interesting face. Like she does. She, she carries it. It's important to note, as with at least one other character in this film, that Ursulandus was entirely overdubbed. I'm going to be honest. I don't know for certain why, but all of her spoken dialogue was dubbed by a woman called Nikki Vanderzil, and her singing voice was dubbed by Diana Kirkland, both of whom were uncredited. Mm. But obviously, this is just something that was happening. Industry standard. A lot more, yes, at the time. Yeah. But so I, I like Ursula Andres' presence in this film. I just wish they'd done more with her and it's not even necessarily a case of it was a different time in the cultural hegemony because as we will see even in this film like Eunice Gason gets a much more interesting thing to do in her five minutes on screen as Sylvia Trench.
0: She really does like she makes much more of a lasting impression she has much more of a personality which is just fascinating so we meet her because she and Bond are opposites at a table in a casino And they flirt after she loses, right? Yes. Yeah. And so they end up flirting. He gives her his card. And then um, she ends up breaking into his apartment and playing golf, just wearing his shirt, which is like such a power move. It's it's really hot. (laughs) Like. It's It must be really hard to break into an MI6 agent's apartment. But like, she's also completely chill. It was hot.
1: She's just there in one of his shirts.
0: And she's like, oh yeah, we were gonna play golf tomorrow, but I thought I'd set up a little golf game in your apartment. You got some nice dicks here, son. And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> the confidence is like, ooh. Very hot.
1: Tomorrow? see. Sounds tempting. I decided to accept your invitation. That was for tomorrow afternoon. I changed into something more comfortable. Oh, I hope I did the right thing. Well, you did the right thing, but you picked the wrong moment. When did you say
0: you had to leave?
1: Immediately. Almost immediately.
0: Now, would she have been viewed that way in the 1960s? Probably not. She probably would have been viewed as, like, a very bad woman for doing something like this and pursuing him this way, but, like...
1: I do wonder, because I feel like she is looked on pretty sympathetically by the camera.
0: That's true!
1: I feel like the dialogue she's given, the way Eunice Gason plays her, the way she is filmed, posits her, and this is why it's so disappointing that she gets so little to do, especially going forward. As Bond's equal.
0: She is, yeah.
1: She is kind of being set up here as the woman Bond will come home to, in inverted commas.
0: Yeah, it's a good point, because contrasted with that, the next woman that we meet, not counting the secretary of the MI6 agent who is, like, assassinated on the job, so Lois Maxwell plays Miss Moneypenny, who is the secretary to M, who is the head of MI6.
1: I just want to say we were very blessed to have Lois Maxwell playing Moneypenny for as long as she does. Like, she stays through the end of Roddy Moore's tenure, and I think has some of the best Chemistry of any woman with Roger Moore in his tenure. But, Seriously, like, definitely also with Sean Connery, and it's just a real treat that she's here so early and that they decided they were happy to keep her. It is.
0: Um, she's wonderful. So Miss Moneypenny, she is one of our core James Bond characters. Like M, like James Bond, like Felix later she will return and we will see her many, many times. We actually see her in pretty much every single film. And so she's just one of those classic characters. She has a very flirtatious, but platonic relationship with James Bond, at least in the Sean Connery and Roger Moore era. She takes on a bit more of a uh, unrequited crush vibe when we get to Pierce Brosnan, which I'm not as much of a fan of. I really did love this interaction between her and Sean Connery where like he like, snuggles up against her and he's like, you know that you're the only woman that I really love. And she's like, uh-huh. You tell me sweet nothings, James. I, I will not believe you, but please keep going. You never take me to dinner looking like this, James.
1: You never take me to dinner, period. I would, you know. Only M would have me court-martialed for uh, illegal use of government property. Flattery will get you nowhere, but don't stop trying.
0: And it's just a wonderful dynamic between them. It's a very consensual, like, sexy kind of thing. Like, you really believe that they're good friends. And it's great. She's wonderful. She's so witty and funny and charming. Do you have anything else to say about her?
1: No, except that she is, she was a Canadian actress, but hmm. works a lot in the UK and has this lovely, unusual, sort of transatlantic Canadian British accent.
0: Mm-hmm. Then we have, in terms of like minor female characters, we have Margaret LaWorse as Animal Chung,
1: a photographer for the Daily Gleaner, which is, was at least, I can't confirm whether it still exists. That's my ignorance showing. One of the newspapers in Jamaica,
0: mm-hmm. but she's actually working for Doctor No.
1: She does appear in Yellow Face, and her voice is also dubbed as. Explained.
0: As we explained earlier, yeah. And then we have we have another woman who Miss Tar. Who is working for the yeah, she's she's like the secretary to the geologist who is working for Dr. No. And she seduces Bond after luring him up there and it's like the third or fourth like attempt on Bond's life. They sleep together and like
1: Bond um, thinks it out and yeah.
0: she thinks she's slick, but James Bond, I think, immediately is like, something's up with this lady. And I think she's working for Dr. No. And there's this hilarious moment where after they have sex, she um, starts painting her nails. (laughs) And I thought we were going to go with this idea that she it's like poisonous or something. And that's why she's doing it. Because I'm like, what woman would immediately start to paint her nails just after having sex with a man who's still there? Because she could have another go of it. But no, she just starts doing it. And then there's nothing that comes of it. And I'm like, this makes no sense. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Nothing beyond her saying "Mind my nail varnish" when he starts stonging her. No. We talked about Honey Rider, I think only other significant women characters we can talk about are Doctor No's staff, hospitality staff, basically.
0: Yes, they're credited as Sister Lily and Sister Rose, yeah, which is interesting. interesting.
1: And the way they are dressed suggests to me that that's based on like British nursing. At the time,
0: yeah, and they're they're very polite. They're very interesting. Honestly, they have a very short amount of time on screen, but they're giving an interesting performance.
1: Especially the the main one who looks after
0: them. Yeah, the lead.
1: They are played by Yvonne Chima and Michelle Mock. I believe the main one is Sister Lily. They're, they're actually described as prison wardens.
0: Yeah, they are basically like the nicest. But most menacing yeah. hospitality clerks that you could meet at a hotel that you don't want to be staying at. And, like, it's effective. It's fun. They're interesting. We talked about with Honey Rider and how, like, she doesn't really, unfortunately, have much of a personality. Because you'd think, like, oh, well, she gets to play a role in actually seeing maybe Dr. No's demise because her father, she's invested.
1: I was going to say, does Honey Rider get to have good sex with Bond? As. Eh. I mean,
0: he seems to be enjoying it. He
1: seems to be enjoying it. What about her?
0: She seems to be enjoying it. It's fine. It's not particularly interesting. I will say, like, watching it, I'm like, I mean, I get that she's attractive, but, like, to me, because there's not really a personality, I don't really find myself that compelled by her. Like, I don't know.
1: My opinions on sex very wildly. but I think the best sex we see, really, even though there isn't anything to it, is with Sylvia Trench. I would have been fine seeing... In this case, in post-coital, that would have been (laughs) something.
0: And I think for me, like, the way that sex is portrayed in this film, for me, like, as a novice, as somebody who hadn't seen many Bond films, it really, like, kind of caught me off guard how much sex there was in these films. Because I think they're actually just a bit more cavalier about it than, like, than movies, I think, nowadays. It shows sex in, like, a way that's very, like, playful and fun and not very serious rather than a way that's like very serious and dramatic which I feel like is the way that sex is usually portrayed in action movies that I see nowadays and I find it very refreshing to actually watch these films and see that like like Sylvia Trench we we don't see her again except for the next film she had a good time
1: she looks like she had a good time it's pretty evident that she's about to have a good time
0: yeah Honey Rider looked like she had a good time and like that's actually kind of interesting in its own right to think about now, Miss Tarot, it's very tricky because she's doing it like as a spy. I don't really get the impression that she enjoyed it, but it's also because I think shes it's a job. I think that you give this impression that she is kind of disgusted by it.
1: Yeah. It's not a lack of consent thing. It's that she's just not- Her heart's not in it. <laughs> yeah.
0: In other parts. <laughs> It Yeah, it's a very, um. I think it's, you know, your basic introduction into the way sex will play a role in the James Bond classic films.
1: That's, as with so much of this, including the Allies, because, like, I've already kind of said that I think... You
0: think Felix Leiter is kind of bland.
1: The thing about Felix Leiter is that, like, so often he's kind of boring, and he's boring enough here that I kind of don't want to talk about him too much, but a brief background is that Felix Leiter is... Bond's counterpart in the CIA, and as we are meeting him in this film, it is canonically the first time he's meeting Felix Slighter. and he's just kind of boring. He's a blonde guy in sunglasses. And he
0: doesn't bother me as much as he bothers you, but that's okay.
1: I mean, he doesn't bother me, he's just kind of boring, and I don't, I don't want to move on from him. He's not my least favorite... Maybe he is my least favorite character, just because <laughs> he's, not, he's kind of nothing.
0: Coral is great and it's a real shame what happens to him. Yeah. Because he is so interesting.
1: Coral is played by John Kitzmiller.
0: He's he's attractive.
1: An American actor, the first black actor to win the Cannes Film Festival Award for Best Actor.
0: Wow. That's awesome.
1: In nineteen fifty seven in a, a Yugoslavian film called Valley of Peace. And he is best known for this role, which Yeah. I he starts out like he the treatment of him starts out really well. I think. Yeah, it does. Is like knowledge and expertise is respected. If it ain't my friend what gets addresses is mixed. You got the right one this time if you likes good eating. I do if the uh, conversation matches it. Back at the ball, too public. But then we get to Crab Key. As soon as Lighter leaves them and it's just Bond and Vorrow, Bond starts treating him as a servant.
0: It's a very weird vibe. Literally, like, Quarrel, cover the boat. Cover it up. Fetch my shoes. Quarrel, get my shoes. And it's like, the other thing about Quarrel is that once they get to the island, he won't stop talking about the fact that Dr. No has a dragon. Honey Rider, to the film's credit, also thinks that there is a dragon. But like, you know, Bond, very reasonably, is like, y'all. It's not a dragon. It's something that's designed to look like a dragon, obviously, because dragons aren't real. But, like, Quarrel goes from being, like, someone who is helping the CIA and is very competent and knows the island to somebody who is incredibly, like, superstitious.
1: Suddenly it becomes, like, this really ugly exploitation of the superstitious black person trope. Yeah, yeah. And then he dies.
0: And then he dies very unceremoniously. He is killed by the armed guards. We don't see his body. He's burned alive and it's dark. But like, there's a moment where it looks like Bond might be heading back to his body to pay respects. And they have to leave him there. And when they meet up with Felix Leiter at the end of the film after Dr. No's lair has been destroyed, Felix doesn't remark on the fact that Quarrel didn't come back. No. Like, he's just like, oh well. (laughs) Which is like, really? It... That part to me is is a very frustrating element
1: of this movie. Yeah. I really like Anthony Dawson as Professor Dent.
0: He's great. He's a compelling character.
1: And he starts off with this like real smugness, smarminess. Knows what he's talking about. Believes he can get one over Bond. But then a couple of the assassination attempts sale, and he has to go to Dr. No personally to explain and he's terrified and
0: it's a very interesting first meeting of dr no we don't actually see him on screen but it's our first real taste of you know a signature ken adams set yeah which we will talk about a little later
1: why do you disobeyed my strictest rule and come in daylight i had to bond came to see me this morning yes i know i gave orders that he should be killed why is he still alive our attempts failed your attempts failed i do not like failure you are not going to fail me again, Professor.
0: We're introduced to the idea of Doctor No pretty early in the film, but it takes us a while to actually meet him. And by the time we meet him, we spend about ten minutes on screen with him before the film ends. The performance is so interesting, and I just wish that the film spent more time with him, actually seeing him. That's the
1: thing, and I think it's Im- like it's important to be honest about this. Like I think Joseph Wiseman does a good job. I think he inhabits the role pretty well. He is. Quiet and creepy. He is one of these villains that doesn't really raise his voice or make sudden movements, and Mm -hmm. that's often very effective in Bond, because often Bond has a shorter fuse than his villains, because he has a little bit more of a moral compass. Mm -hmm. On the face of it, as the villain of this film, I don't think that Joseph Wiseman was miscast. I wish he wasn't playing a character called Dr. No. Yeah. Who is intended to be a German-Chinese man and in yellow face.
0: Yeah, and that's the biggest thing.
1: And of course, all villains in Bond must die, tend to.
0: Yeah, they do.
1: Which means we can talk about kills now. Yes. Because there are several kills. Not as many. Like, the death count, the body count is lower in this film than most Bond films, at least. But were the kills effective? What do you think? I
0: think so. The murder of the geologist by Bond is compelling. Like, it's yeah. interesting. Like, he thinks that he's gotten the one up on Bond, and then Bond's like, nah, I know exactly how many rounds you have left on that gun. That's
1: a Smith, Smith & Wesson, and you've, you've had, had your six. Suit. There are multiple times, kind of spare times, through the Bond series where Bond gets a chance to be really direct and brutal with a straight face. And maybe he still gives a pun, you know, has a one liner, but it's often delivered through somewhat gritted teeth immediately before the kill rather than after. And this is the first of those times and I think it's really effective. Other kills, like a hearse rolls down a hill and explodes.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's what (laughs) How about we use that as the segue to the next segment? Yeah, because
1: ones like I think they're on the way to the funeral.
0: that man looks at him like what is wrong with you what kind of joke is that <laughs> it's great it's yeah, one it's of our great. first real James Bond puns I
1: would say it is it is like the first true Bond one-liner yeah and I like it I like it all
0: it's good it's a solid joke it's very silly but it's solid we will go on to have much better jokes I yeah, think
1: much better and more of them Because there aren't that many going on in this. The
0: part that I found very hilarious was the tarantula scene. Yes. And I think it's more because, like, we've talked about this because, like, the tarantula scene is funny because, I mean, it's clear that it's not Sean Connery actually getting the tarantula crawling up him. But, like, he gets out of that bed like anybody would finding a tarantula in in the middle of the night. It's hilarious. And then he, like, he goes after it with his shoe. And it's just, like... Watching it, I'm like, James Bond is literally all of us. If we if this were to happen to us, he, yeah. he reacted exactly that way. Sometimes, And that's really funny.
1: Sometimes James Bond is a relatable kind of guy.
0: Yeah, sometimes he's very relatable.
1: I mean, a visual gag, let's say, later on in Dr. No's Lair is that as Bond and Honey Rider are about to sit down for dinner, Bond notices a painting. And it is a famous painting of the Duke of Wellington That was, at the time, in real life, in 1962, stolen. And it is just a little... There's a fun
0: double take.
1: Oh, well, Dr. No stole it. And this was suggested by Joanna Harwood, who I previously mentioned in our history segment. And it's one of the few significant details that we know that she included in this. That's cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a nice little bit of history that you were able to give me context for when we were watching. Yeah, and speaking of the lair, yeah, let's talk about Ken Adams' amazing sets.
1: As I've alluded to in the, like, the the demo episode, the sets and music are like my favorite things about Bond. Put them together, they kind of make the Bond aesthetic for me. And so, starting with the sets, Ken Adams is here, German-born set designer Ken Adams, who. Like many of the actors and directors we mentioned earlier, was not interested in doing this because he thought that Bond was kind of potboiler, kind of pulpy, <laughs> and he he thought he was above it. But he had already worked with Cubby properly. He designed the sets for The Trials of Oscar Wilde and had a good time doing that. And he found that he liked both Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman, and, and agreed to do it. And we're so lucky that he did. Like, we really are. The whole genre of spy movies is so lucky that Ken Adam agreed to design production for this movie, because like he comes right out of the gate with these. Like, these three particular th- fantastic sets, like, I'm thinking of the set, very stark set, just a room and a table, and the skylight where Dent comes to be grilled by Dr. No. I'm thinking of the underground, underwater dining hall, where Dr. No entertains Bond and Honey Rider, and there's this massive window into the sea, which is obviously... A composite shot, but it looks fantastic.
0: Bond villains and their fish. They love aquariums. They really do. It does look really good, and I think something else about that particular set is that this, along with the control room for the radio, you know, death weapon that he's controlling. Yeah, that was the last one I
1: wanted to mention.
0: It's so, they're all so iconic.
1: These are sets that, in general, are only made to be shot from one angle, and like, look fantastic from that angle. Like, the angles within the sets are composed so well. The mix of angles and curves and circles and all sorts of different shape language and color language is just spot on.
0: It is, and... What's really fascinating to me and that I noticed as somebody who hadn't really watched these films before, when you first started showing them to me, I was immediately caught off guard by like how familiar they seemed. And it took me a little while to really recognize them, but it's because I recognize them from The Incredibles and Kim Possible. And Kim Possible's villain sets are, like, so, I would even go so far as to say, like, the animation style itself is, like, based around an animation style that would support doing Ken Adams set justice. And it is Ken Adam, not Ken Adams. So, if I'm stumbling over words, it's because I'm trying to remember that it's not Ken Adams- His sets are just, they are so distinctive and they've been so influential on the genre and on like, like Syndrome's lair is like straight out of a Ken Adam sketchbook. It's amazing.
1: Even if you've never seen a Bond film, if you've seen Phineas and Ferb.
0: Yeah. Do French Prince's Lair. It's fascinating. Because, like, I grew up watching Kim Possible and then Phineas and Ferb. It's like a very perfect mesh of Pierce Brosnan, like, action and the classic elements that make Bond in the Sean Connery and Roger Moore era so much fun.
1: Yeah. And another thing, if I may segue to our last individual category, that really defines this era, especially in sets the stage for designing the whole genre in the end is the music, and we have the debut of the James Bond theme, composed by Monty Norman, arranged and performed by John Barry and his orchestra, iconic guitar line played by Vic Flake. Monty Norman wrote all the rest of the music for this film. It's the only film, Bond film, that he worked on. Obviously, his Bond theme continues through everything else. John Barry would take over the reins for the actual scoring for the rest of them. I'll have more to say on John Barry, but like Monty Norman wrote a fantastic theme for this film. There's lots of interesting history behind that, which is pretty complex. But I, I do think that John Barry's arrangement of it Really cements it This mix of Rock and roll and bebop Jazz and big band And it is this used through the film Not as much as I remembered actually do you have much to say about the music? Because I'm realizing, like, it's kind of sparse.
0: It is. There's not a lot going on musically, and that's mostly because I think the iconic Bond song is not really present in this film. When we get to From Russia with Love, that's when we start getting the namesake, like, ballad. The title song, yeah. Yeah, the title song. We do have a very fun Calypso arrangement of Three Blind Mice, which is kind of fun, and it leads into the faking blindness assassins that we meet at the beginning of the film. We've also got
1: a couple of original songs written by Monty Norman. It's true,
0: Underneath the Mango Tree, which you have a very fun little anecdote about that.
1: <laughs> According to John Burlingame's great book, The Music of James Bond, Monty Norman says that he had like, a town meeting with a bunch of Jamaican residents to try and get some vernacular and patois to include in the lyrics of this original song. To was. make it
0: as authentic as possible.
1: Yeah, and they gave them some genuine stuff, but they also gave him the term... Um, Bula Loop <laughs> as an innuendo of the sex Make and several decades later he remarks that they were probably having him on.
0: Yeah, which I just think is really funny. I like knowing that he interviewed locals to try and make it sound like a song that they really would have on the island, but then I also like that they still teased him about it. Like, it's fun.
1: Kind of makes up a very slight bit for the fact that, like, if this film were being made now, and I was a music supervisor, I would insist that if you want Jamaican source music...
0: We should hire Jamaican artists
1: jamaican songwriters to write it not just oh absolutely there is some music performed in this song that is performed by a jamaican band called the dragonairs but that is monty norman music that they're playing
0: michaela is a musician and she will actually be composing all of the intro and outro music for this podcast so when she talks about music stuff i i tend to believe that you know what you're talking about well thank you you're very smart <laughs> I don't
1: know everything my theory leaves a lot to be desired but I know what I like
0: I think the biggest thing about about the theme is that we first hear it for like you know your classic like looking down the gun barrel opening sequence for the title but then we also hear it again when we are actually shown Sean Connery's face for the first time as Bond and it is really fantastic
1: Bond James Bond
0: It's just like, it made me smile watching it. It's so well-timed and like, because he says it, his introduction to the character is literally like Bond, James Bond, which is what you expect and remember.
1: Somehow they knew what they were doing from the beginning, like there's no- They did. We get Bond, James Bond, we get shaken, not stirred, things that they could have stumbled on, they could have like not got right the first time, but they do. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of, like, the first time, and how about we end this segment back at the beginning, because I'd like to talk about the title sequence. Mm -hmm. What did we think of the titles this time?
0: I think the titles are interesting. They're not quite what they would eventually go on to be. There I mean like there are women dancing and they're outlined, but they are not naked. <laughs> we we will get to that.
1: There are also outlines of more masculine figures as well.
0: Yes, yes there are. And because we don't have a title song necessarily, we play with the dots that yeah. are there from the Eon Productions logo.
1: And this is the one Bond film where we don't get a pre-title sequence which becomes a significant thing as whether the some... film will go straight in with the gun barrel, but then the gun barrel tends to iris out to a pre-credit sequence before the title song. Here, the gun barrel aperture becomes a dot, which becomes a multitude of dots, which make up a very late, late 50s, early 60s title sequence, yeah. which has a lot of dynamism. I like it a lot. I think where the title sequence falls flat is where it transitions into the anonymous background silhouette dancers mm. with a beat. And part of that is that Morris Spinder editing this together, I don't think was great at editing music together because he transitioned from the Bond theme to the drums which then transition also kind of poorly to Monty Norman's Calypso arrangements with Free Blind Mice. And I just think it could be
0: better. Yeah, I agree with that.
1: Well, what's all this to do about? Sean Connery is really good in this. Like, I, I think we could we could go this whole podcast just taking that as read because it's Sean Connery. But like, it's his first time. Let's talk about him, like briefly. What do we think of him here?
0: I think he's great. So for supplementary viewing, you had us watch Darby O'Gill and the Little People, yes. which is available on Disney Plus, and actually is great. Nothing objectionable in that movie. No to me. If you're watching it with your children, the female character is like really well written in that and very very feisty and I fell in love with her and I fell in love with Sean Connery falling in love with her.
1: If you are watching it with kids there is a sequence near the very end that Seems like it's going to be desperately bittersweet and sad, but it is okay. So if you're watching it with young kids who aren't sure what's going to happen, you can tell them it's going to be okay.
0: We watched that because it was Sean Connery's first, like, top billing film, where he was actually on the poster.
1: Yeah, and he was good in it.
0: He was great in it, and he's got a beautiful voice.
1: Yeah, and he only sings a little in each. He sings slightly more in Darby girl.
0: Yeah. Underneath the mango tree, my honey and me. Who is that? Dreamboat. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I love Sean Connery. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a Roger Moore girl. I am a Sean Connery. And you are like, you know, whatever, <laughs> as a lesbian. I mean, he's. <laughs> As a bisexual, Bond is very difficult sometimes because <laughs> there's beautiful men, there's beautiful women, there's beautiful henchmen. It's very <laughs> annoying.
1: <laughs> he knocks it out of the park right out of the gate here, honestly. Like, there's nothing wrong with his performance. He is really confident and self-assured, and that does reflect the stuff that I mentioned in the history portion earlier. But besides Conroy, and I really don't think there's much more to say about him, Me as a Bond veteran, you watching this for the second time, you go first. What did you think?
0: I think it's a fun movie. Like, it feels like the right way to start the series. Like, it's not the most exciting, it's not the most outlandish thing that will happen, but we have the core components that will go on to make this film legacy. Yeah. We have some high points, we have some low points, and I think it's enjoyable.
1: I find I appreciate it on its own merits more every time I watch it. I remember when I was first watching these when I was 11. Aww. And this wasn't the first one I saw. had to either buy or rent them on VHS or record them from the TV if they happened to be on. So it took a while for me to get to this, and naturally I think it suffered a bit in my viewing of it because I'd seen a bunch of them before and it's just not as exciting. The pacing isn't quite there. But last couple of times I've watched it, it's been ahead of the rest of them or isolated from them. And it really works best that way, I think.
0: I agree. I think the right way to watch it is as an introduction to the rest. Because I remember when we watched in twenty eighteen, like I liked Doctor No and it was fine. But then we got to From Russia with Love and I remember really liking From Russia with Love. So I'm I'm excited to get to From Russia with Love. Me too. Not gonna lie.
1: Do I have a sublime sequence for this? I think it is the sequence once Bond has packed Miss Taro into the police car and he's on his own in her house. He turns off the lights and just sits there playing solitaire for a few hours and Dent arrives, starts telling him the plan but gets too big for his boots and Bond shoots him. Yeah. I think that's the best sequence in this film. It's the most accomplished sequence. First runner-up would be the stuff with Sylvia Trench. Oh, Earlier, yeah, but it doesn't really go anywhere. It doesn't have much to do with the rest of the film, whereas obviously the language languishing you know, dent does. Mm-hmm. Five words or less.
0: Hmm. Perhaps um, yellowface in Jamaica.
1: Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that does say a lot.
0: It does. There's just a lot of yellowface. I I had really forgotten how much there was because I remembered Doctor No. Yeah. But like watching this again, I was like, oh my
1: god. Is it? I think it's important to say that like. Only isn't the right way to say it, but there are three characters in Yellowface, three actors in Yellowface. They all have significant parts to play. And Yellow Face is a bad choice. I think
0: it's it's not only like the weight that these characters have, it's the fact that like we actually see these characters like multiple times or for extended periods yeah. of time. So like they are, by all intents and purposes, like the quote unquote Asian characters that we see the most in the film. Yeah. Like when we get to the lair and we actually meet real Asian actors, they either don't have lines or they're really only there for a few minutes. Like
1: And they are an ensemble. Yeah. So I'm going to go with
0: Yellowface in Jamaica.
1: Yeah. I think I'm going to go with... You've covered the worst aspects of it, so I kind of want to go for a positive aspect. Go for it. A neat, if bland, beginning.
0: Ooh, I like that. Yeah, do you recommend it, babe? I
1: Honestly, I think I only recommend it if you're going to watch more Bond films.
0: I agree with that.
1: It's not necessary otherwise. No. If you want to get an essence of Bond, this isn't the film.
0: No, I think you could easily start from from Russia with Love or Goldfinger. Yeah. So I agree with that. I think, especially because the elements of the movie that we talked about that are kind of its downfall, whether it's the yellow face, the racism, the story beats that just last for a very long time, it's not the best entry point unless you are already committed to watching all of the Sean Connery films or whatever.
1: I don't think the good stuff is strong enough to push away the splick Mm -hmm. from the yellow face and the mistreatment of Quarrel and Honey Rider's general lack of character.
0: I think that's it. If you don't have to put up with that, why would you? No. Like, we've, we've come up with a lot of interesting things that are fun to talk about in terms of Dr. No, but we came up with those things because we had to. Yeah. Like... We had to watch this, so not a bad film, necessarily, but not the best that it has to offer.
1: I enjoy it as a Bond fan, but, like, it's not my Desert Island Bond No.
0: So. Oh, I'll be interested to know which one that is. Tomorrow Never Dies for me, definitely. Michelle Yeoh.
1: Yeah, you could, yeah. Anyways. Thank you so much for joining us, for listening to us talk about this. But we're on our way to a funeral.
0: But, um, I mean, <laughs> someone
1: died a couple of weeks ago.
0: Oh my god, can you say that as a British person?
1: I just said it as a British person.
0: Wow, the audacity.
1: We will see you in two weeks, and we will be jumping to 1963 with From Russia With Love with our guest, Andrea Mm Mm-hmm. It's going to be really good. She's going to be fun.
0: Yeah, she will be fun. And if you want to watch From Russia With Love ahead of time, most of the James Bond films are actually streaming on Amazon Prime. You can find Michaela and I on social media on Twitter and Instagram. Our handles will be in the show notes and we will also be posting other things about the show there as well as just being generally delightful on the internet. Um, mm-hmm. If you enjoyed this, go ahead and leave a review. Let us know what you thought if you watched Dr. No, if you disagreed.
1: Until next time, I'm Michaela
0: and I'm Sarah. Thank you for joining us.
1: Stay safe. Goodbye.
0: Bye. Bye. Let us know what you thought. If you disagreed, Um, ah, well, if you disagreed, don't say that. Never mind. We can cut that part. Who cares if they disagreed? I'm not going to read that.